Hello. A blast of fire echoes across the ages, with forces beyond imagining equally matched. A single element steps forward to choose the fate of all. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and tangerine, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Our feature presentation is the 1983 gothic horror The Keep, written for the screen and directed by three-time Oscar nominee Michael Mann. And my guest is the humanoid spectre of Chris Armsby. Do join us on the front parlor of his forbidding estate in Tutti. Chris, hello. Hello. Now, I chose The Keep because it's something that keeps cropping up on lists of cult films and odd obscurities. Mm. So, I thought it was worth looking at in a degree of detail. Yeah, it's it's an odd film because it seems to be very fondly remembered, and I actually quite I, I can't I, I could not to give up the game away. Obviously, I quite like it, but I'm not entirely sure why it's fondly remembered. It it's a bit of a mess narratively. <laughs> It's got some nice imagery in it. The soundtrack's fan. Maybe it's just, is it just the soundtrack? Is that what everyone latches onto? The soundtrack does seem to have a fandom all its own. Mm. Um, I read up a little bit about Tangerine Dream, the uh, Aldi Kraftwerk, shall we say? <laughs> um, they've released over a hundred albums. Okay, good for them. And uh, Edgar Fraser, who was the architect of the whole thing, only died. Mm, last year relatively recently yeah um, you're saying about uh, the narrative structure the film is an hour and 36 minutes mm. how much roughly do you think was removed from the director's cut I did I, I after I watched it I went and looked on Wikipedia I remember it was a lot um, it's, it's about an hour I think isn't it it's nearly two hours you see what I find strange about that as well is there doesn't seem to be enough plot to fill the current running time I mean basically a bunch of German soldiers turn up at a, ca- a castle a monster starts killing them a guy comes along to stop the monster the monster is stopped and there's some lovely imagery on the way, you know, but... Well, you're leaving out yeah. the character of Professor Kuzer. This is true. Who is yeah. the key... St- I mean, it's based on a book as well. Um, yes. By F. Paul Wilson. You know, the, the, I think one thing that helps with the keep being a cult movie is it's really hard to get hold of. Yeah, In yeah. any form, because it's never been released on DVD. It is, however, on several streaming and download services, so it's relatively easy to get hold of now. It's it's on the TV broadcast side. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been on Film 4 a few times hmm. in the last couple of years. It's probably going to turn up again fairly soon. The book is out of print. I was able to get hold of a Kindle copy, oh, okay. which was like a spear through my heart because I loathed the Kindle. Yeah. But unfortunately, anyway, I had read it. Um, and the soundtrack is out of print. Oh, OK, that's interesting. Given what we said about the soundtrack having its own fandom, I'm a little that's, surprised about that. Exactly, that's the sort of thing that's ripe for a re-release on vinyl perhaps mm. my local library that did such a good job of supplying the Medusa touch did let me down on uh, the keep oh. unfortunately I, f- I finished reading it earlier today 
and it fills in all the gaps okay. whilst simultaneously managing to be quite hilarious in some of its decisions. Ah. Oh. Which we will get into. Okay. Um, there is a graphic novel. Yeah. Adapted by Wilson himself. And he regards that as the visual version of the book. He seems to have taken a bit of a sniffy attitude to the film. In, in the same way that Stephen King never seemed to like Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining, he never seemed to like Michael Mann's version of The Cape either. No, and again, I think I understand why. Mm. Uh, particularly the, the filleted version that was released which really isn't a satisfactory version of the story, I no, don't think. No, and it must be, it must, it must be odd as well if, if, you, if you take pride in something and then you see it processed through somebody else's artistic vision. Um, there's a, sorry, I'm in danger of going off on a tangent very, very early. Please do. There's a terrific little anecdote in one of um, the books by William Goldman. I think it's not Which Night Did I Tell, it's the follow-up. Adventures um, in Screenwriting. Okay, maybe it is advent. Maybe it's which line did I tell? And he's talking about adapting Absolute Power, and he reads the book, thinks it's brilliant, can't possibly work out how to turn it into a screenplay, and just goes, you know, spends ages trying to break the story down, can't do it, and eventually, can't, somebody else tells him that the only way to make the story work as a screenplay is to keep one of the characters alive that dies early on in the book. <laughs> um, so I can imagine if you're an author and you go along and you watch these things, yeah, you must suddenly think, well, they're, they're, they've made a complete mess of it. Funnily enough, I actually saw Absolute Power fairly recently. Okay. It's quite a decent little film. I'm trying to guess now which character it gets killed off early on. Okay. Um, well, it's, it's Clint Eastwood. Oh, the main character <laughs> yes, of, yeah. of the film. Basically, it was kind of a pain. I think once the, once the decision was made to keep the thief alive, it was a page one rewrite. Um, because otherwise the story doesn't make any sense. I think it turns into one of those films... I think the book itself is one of those books where there's no immediately obvious protagonist. Right. Um, and yeah, and that was what was doing William Goldman's head in, was the fact that he couldn't find anybody to latch onto who was the obvious hero. And in the end, because Clint Eastwood's character is there at the beginning of the story. I guess it does make sense for him to be the person that you follow all the way through. Mm. But yeah, spoilers for the book, he dies. And relatively early on as well. I think so, yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, one of the major cast in um, Absolute Power is Scott Glenn. Oh, okay. <laughs> who, um, who stars in The Keep. The Keep has actually quite an interesting, mm. relatively distinguished cast. Scott Glenn is top build, which... I find interesting because for the first half of the movie he doesn't do anything. Well, this is what... Th there's a point... There was a point about... Maybe about halfway through, I'm not sure. There didn't seem to be any obvious protagonist again. You've got the, you've got the German soldiers. You've got the SS officers. Well, obviously they can't be the heroes of the film. No. Um, you've got the Romanian villagers. You've got the doctor whose name... Manus Kuzer. Um who could be the hero, I guess. And then you've got this guy that's coming from wherever he starts the story. It, it's Portugal, actually. Portugal, OK. And, you know, and he just seems to spend most of the time travelling. Travelling from Portugal. He, uh, again, it's 
it's slightly vague in the film, but there's mm. more detail in the book about his whole journey for, across the Mediterranean. Yeah, but I mean, over land to Romania. But certainly, that was the thing that surprised me was that he's credited first. Maybe it's just because he was the biggest name, possibly, because as the head of the Wehrmacht soldiers of the German regular army, we have Jürgen Prochnow. Yes, fresh from Dust Boot. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, playing another. World War Two German officer who doesn't like Nazis very much, no, that's right. and uh, I like his character, particularly in the, in the again in the book as well as in the, the movie. He's very much an anti-fascist, mm. but he's also a soldier for his country. So there's an interesting conflict there. Yes, um, and then we have the SS officer played by Gabriel Byrne, mm. another great name, um, called, called the character called Kempfer. Yes, and now you speak German considerably better than I do. Do any of these names actually mean anything? Because I'm aware that the... the and I've forgotten his name again. Um, the, the, the professor? The, no, the, effectively the lead character, the, the hero who comes from Portugal. Oh, yeah, okay. It's called something Tris, Trismegistus. Yes. Um, now that's a name that's loaded with kind of mythological symbolism because there was a Greek character called Hermes Trismegistus who uh, was a, a, an incarnation of Hermes. Again, I'm very, very vague on the details, but I spotted that. And then you've got a character called Kampfner, and is it Werner? Kempfer. Kempfer. Verman. Verman. I mean, do they directly translate out of German into anything? Or? Well, I would just like, pick you up on about um, Trismegistus. Mm. That's, his, that's his last name in the film. His yeah. full name is given as Glaken Trismegistus, mm. which is said exactly once, along with the creature's name. It's said exactly once towards the end of the movie. In the, in the book, we're not told his name for quite a long time, <laughs> until he signs in at the inn in the village, where he gives his name as Glen. Glen. Oh, that dear. great mythological heroic name, Glenn. Oh dear. And then later on he says, no, actually, that's not my real name. My real name is Glaken, mm. which is, in the film, it's his first name. Uh, Kempfer literally means warrior. warrior. It's the laziest bit of character naming I've ever seen. Right. Vorman doesn't mean anything, but it doesn't sound like a real name. I thought maybe it might translate as war man or something, but obviously well, not. Well, no, because he's very much not. He's not... No, no. He doesn't even seem like a natural soldier. He'll, he's there to. I mean, he's sworn to uphold Germany, but mm. it's a Germany that doesn't exist anymore yes. because it's World War Two. And whereas Kempfer is a horrible, just he's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. I mean, yeah. he's a proper, you know, almost caricature level mm. Nazi. Well, they, complete with terrible haircut. They turn. They turn up, and their very, very first action is round up the villages uh, and shoot them. Yes, which. Yeah. It's, it's kind of it's not odd exactly, but it's that thing that when when the film starts and the German soldiers arrive, there's normally in 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 films when a bunch of Germans turn up and there are peasants around, it's going to end very very badly for the peasants. So it's kind of a surprise that Jürgen Pinchow's character turns up and they they act quite decently in comparison, and then the SS turn up and they behave exactly how you'd like the German, how you'd expect the Germans to appear in a film like this. Yes, um, and yeah, they don't waste any time. They 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 leap out and they 
kicking people and dragging them around and ordering a firing squad, yeah. The reason the SS have turned up, of course, is that as soon as the uh, Wehrmacht soldiers install themselves in the keep, and the reason they're there, is, is, is there much explanation of why they're there? They're just there. Um, it's a pass through the Carpathian Alps, isn't it? So I yes. assume it's strategically significant. Strategic in case uh, Russia attacks. That is a route that they would take. Okay. So, um, but as soon as they install themselves there, people start to die. And the reason they start to die is because the inside of the keep itself is covered in these strange metal cross shapes. And they're made of nickel. But one avaricious soldier discovers one that's made of gold. And he ropes in his pal to help lever that particular block out, thinking, ooh, there's going to be loads of gold behind there. That's, mm-hmm. that's why we've been sent here, yes. to find all this Jewish gold. Uh, but, and it's, it's again, it's really... It's a terrific it's a, sequence. It's a terrific sequence. It's actually a lot better in the film than it is on the page, because mm-hmm. in the book it's written, well, this is logically what would happen. Whereas in the film it's much more dreamlike. Yes. And it's got a pounding piece of tangerine dream music over the top that doesn't really match with no. what's on screen and actually doesn't sound like the soundtrack to a horror film. But that's one of the reasons why it works really well. When um Ed and I talked about Biggles Adventures in Time, that's oh. another movie with a, a period setting with an electronic score. Mm. And we disagreed over whether or not that worked. But I think here it really does work. Yeah. I think the irony, of, as well as having a German composer, I think, well, in some ways you're 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 going back to the same sort of trick that Kubrick pulled with two thousand and one, where you're using music that's not necessarily appropriate towards appearing on screen, but you're using music for the mood for the mood itself, and that yeah, that sequence where they break. The only thing that lets it down a little bit is there seems to be a weird bit of ADR where the soldiers are running. The soldier sees the silver cross, goes out, gets his mate, runs back, and as they're running back towards it, there's a there's a shot of them both running, shot from the back, and one of them says something like, oh, I'm supposed to be on duty. And it kind of looks like the sort of dialogue that they'd loop afterwards to just add yeah. a little bit more explanation. Again, I, that could be a symptom of the mm. production of the fact that it's been scythed. To <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Michael Mann, of course, is an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Mm. Um, he's, had a, he's had a bit of a rough year in the last year because his, did you hear that he'd made a new film? <laughs> uh, no, I mean it's, he's one of the. I, I looked at his film. Once I'd watched The Cape because the only other film I really remembered him making was Heat. Yeah, um, and I couldn't quite work out how he got from The Keep to Heat. And actually, when you look at his filmography, it's very, very interesting and very eclectic. Uh, well, the, the next thing, well, I think roughly the next thing he did after the, the Keep was he created Miami Vice mm. for television, and his next film was Manhunter, which really does feel like the missing link yeah. there between the Keep and his more familiar crime movies, because then he was Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, for which he mm. was, had three Oscar nominations, Ali, and more recently his film last year, Black Hat, which bombed at the box office. Yeah, which I've certainly not. But actually went straight to DVD in some countries. Ah. Um, it was a cyber thriller about the world of hacking and uh, it's cyber terrorism yeah. starring Chris Hemsworth. And it was the thing as it came out in January. 
and it was caught up in the whole that firestorm of yeah. flops that we've had over the last yes, year yeah. of that and Mordecai and Jupiter Ascending all came out about the same time. Mm. Oh right, yeah, yeah. That's it's a, it's kind of a shame. I mean, it, it's. It's it's he it, it just turned. I was just surprised to see some stuff in there that that I wouldn't have expected to see in there. Did he do the Will Smith film Hancock as well? No. It came up on my list. Google is lying have, to oh, me. I may have produced it. Ah, that might explain it. Then. Uh, that's, yeah, that's an odd film because it's written by uh, the original script, I think, or one version. It's written by Vince Gilligan, who is the brain behind Breaking Bad. Yeah. And yet the film. Dreadful. Oh, the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking through. I was looking through this list and thinking, as I say, this may explain this inaccurate list I looked at. May explain why I thought he'd had a more eclectic career than he actually did. Do. But yeah, Hancock was in there. With something. Uh, but if he did, did you say he did Ali as well? Yeah, with Will Smith, which is again a brilliant film. Um, and again, it feels oh collateral as well. I think that's probably his biggest commercial hit. Hmm. Which I haven't. It's very good. Yeah. It's. One of Tom Cruise's finest performances, and I mean, obviously Tom Cruise is a huge weirdo. Well, um, but when he's pushed by a strong director, he really does work wonders on screen, and he's fantastic in it. But it's it's just interesting because Michael Mann turns out to be one of those directors where I've recognised the name, but I don't think I've actually seen a lot of his stuff. But obviously, I've picked up on the stuff that he's done that's been very very successful. Well, the keep is very much emblematic of his style he likes electronic music he likes slow motion mm. he likes dry ice and lasers but one of his recurring tropes in his stories is professionals professional types who in the pursuit of their chosen path have squeezed out everything else money family any kind of emotional life all squashed out so in Manhunter you have that with Will Graham the FBI profiler in Heat most obviously with the, the, the cop and the, and the thief and here you have the soldiers you mm. have the character of Glaken who is devoted to his cause as a, a warrior for light who gradually starts to unbend with his um, his relationship with Eva mm. Kusa's daughter who weirdly in the book is called Magda, but they changed her name for no reason. I wonder if they were worried that because the the creature is not is called again named once on screen, yeah, barely audible dialogue. His full name given in the movie is Radu Molasar. Molasar, that was it. I was thinking of Muller, and then when I started getting mixed up oh. with uh, the Medusa touch, Mol- I wonder if somebody went Magda Molasar. Those names are too similar. Let's just call her Eva. Yeah, possibly. But or there may be a clumsy Garden of Eden allegory going on or something. But Adam's name is Glaken. Yes, yeah. Or okay. Glenn. Yes. Um, it turns out, again, just this, these weird decisions. Uh, Mollus, that's not Molasar's real name. It's oh, actually okay. a very cunning trick because his real name is Rassalom. Rassalom. Yes. Okay. Which is, of course, Molasar backwards. Oh, right. So it's a it's very, not what I was thinking. And again, there is no. This is in the book. There is no reason why he's going around telling people what that his name is the backwards or what his real name is. It doesn't actually achieve anything. Mm. It's not as if that c- creates some kind of 
shield over himself, yeah. as, if the, as if the name has inherent has power. power. Yeah, yeah. Which would be perfectly fine. You could, that would be one line that you could edit. No, yeah. there's no reason for that at all. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's baffling. There was, it's really yeah, baffling. There was some. There was some odd creative decisions in there. Uh, I mean, some of them work quite well. There's a bit, and I suspect this is as much a side effect of the terrible editing as um, and by terrible editing I don't mean that the film itself is edited badly I mean the process of cutting it down yes. from three hours or whatever it was down to 90 minutes you see the first two German soldiers die and then almost the next scene is um, the captain is having a conversation and there's five more five, five, five men are dead now yeah, and, and you, they've sent for help from the SS. Yeah, and you suddenly realise that a week, two weeks has just gone in the in, in the, almost in a transition between scenes, and that's quite nice because that's a moment that might really sort of is disorienting. Um, mm. I think that is probably a, a deliberate decision in the book. Mm. It chronicles everything through, and at that point, Vermin is the lead character. Yeah, and we go through each time every night someone is killed, and they all die by the same. They all are found dead with their throats ripped out. Okay. Unlike the the first two, who um, pull the block out of the wall, one is found beheaded, and the other is crazy. Oh right! So the other one survives. The other one survives until the following night. Of course. Oh, so. <laughs> survive. Whereas in the film, he's not beheaded; he's chopped in half at the waist, <laughs> and the other one is just sort of thrown to the back of the room yes, and, yeah. and dies of falling over. Yeah, and there's. Uh... Some very interesting because it's not always clear exactly what's happening. There were sometimes when it almost looks on screen as if the people have been turned to stone in some weird way. It just it's just it's very odd visual effects at times and stuff. But maybe they've just meant to have been horribly burned or something. Well, but, that's another. I mean, this, this film's just riddled with problems. Well, <laughs> the um, I mean, I, I say riddled with problems. I mean, I, uh, not deliberate. Mm. The head of the visual effects in the movie, Wally Vivas. Mm died during production and this created just another nightmare oh, I can imagine, to work yeah. through um, because the film is quite effects heavy particularly at the end and they had to completely rewrite the ending and there were apparently the original shoot was three months there was then another two months of reshoots the release date was set back by six months it ended up being barely released in Christmas 1983 but um, it, that could be why all the deaths by the Germans look not you can't really see what's going on and they all look different and mm. you feel no there should be a coherent thread to, because in the book they all die the same way yeah they all die of having their throats ripped out except Kempfer is convinced much earlier on that there's something supernatural going on because in the film it's right to the end where he's, he still thinks that oh no it's Romanian partisans and communists and it's mm. Jews doing this and it's not until he comes face to face with Molossar at the end whereas in the book the first night they're there no one dies Why? Well, he says right well clearly they know we mean business oh Germany's great Germany is great actually it's quite a nice place hmm. Nazis are great sausages are good oh yeah <laughs> oh, Bavarian beer yeah, yeah. Best yeah. in the world, maybe? But the following night, he's in his quarters, and there's a knock on the door. He says, ah, come, come in. And there's two soldiers have reported. But it's the way it's described as they're backlit. Right. And they walk over to his 
bedroll where he's lying down. I says, oh, well, what is it then? And he turns his light up and he sees that they're dead. Ah. They've both been killed the same way again. But they are, in some way, zombies. Yes. And they, they just sort of then have the, their strings cut and they fall on him and they scare the crap out of him. Am I right in thinking that in the book it's much more of a vampirism? Yes, there is definitely a major element of the book is referencing vampire lore. Hmm. Molossar is not a vampire, or Rassilon is not a vampire. Although he poses as one. Well, that's, I mean, that matches, and again, it's possible I'm misinterpreting the story here, but am I right in thinking that in the film version of The Keep, he leads. Um, he leads. Uh, great. Kurza. Kurza. I did. Next time we have to do Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, well, to make it easier, um, in the film, Kurza is played by no less yeah. than Sir Ian McKellen. And maybe I should just call him Sir Ian. Just call him Professor. Yeah. Professor. Professor Mag- Gandalf. Pro- Professor Magneto. Yeah. Um, so he poses as a goal. I, I think he seems to be leading in McKellen's character to believe he's a golem. Yes. Um, or a golem. Possibly, yeah. Because he does... I th- it sounds like he says golem, mm. which obviously is coincidence. Yes, yeah. But I thought... <laughs> well, Ian, I mean, there's a whole... <sighs> I'm not going to tell Ian McKellen how to do his job. But I'm not quite sure what accent he was aiming for. Well, it sounded to me like the accent was John Houston in Chinatown. I did wonder if he was doing an impression of somebody as a joke on the production. Oh, you all should... That's that's from Connery. Yeah, but he's... But it's... Or or Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. Mm. Because he acknowledged that he was copying the way John Houston speaks. Yeah, but it's definitely... I've come to you here today to talk about something that's very important. That's very, very. That's very. It's nice. a very easy voice to to imitate. I think it's the only. It's the only impression that I can do that's any good. Fair enough. But he seemed to be playing it with much a, a reasonably strong American accent in places. Even though um, he's supposed to be a Romanian Jew. Yes. Yeah. And he's actually Ian McKellen. Um, yeah. I, and I don't know whether there was a. Obviously, there's the point when he appears on screen and he's covered in old age makeup. And there's a point when I looked at him and went. Was he ever young? <laughs> or did, was he just like the Clive Dunn of his day? Did he finally age into the kind of characters that he was always playing? But obviously there's, the reason for that is that they need to de-age him later yeah. in the film. But anyway, yes, there's, there's an element in the same way... It's just interesting that they seem to go off in two slightly different directions. So that in the book, he plays on people's ideas that he's a vampire, which obviously being in Car- the Carpathian Mountains and stuff mm. plays into the whole Dracula stuff. Whereas in the book, sorry, in the film, he encourages Ian McKellen's character to believe that he's a golem and that he can in some way serve Ian McKellen's character and use him to... That he will protect the Jewish people. Protect the air, yeah. Well, that's how he manipulates Mm. Kuza, ultimately. In the film, it's that he will protect the Jews by destroying Hitler. In the book, it's that he will protect Romania, his homeland, from Hitler. So it's taking two different routes to the same mm, to the same conclusion. Anything. There's, I don't really want to describe it as there's a there's a terrific moment of black humour in it when they're interrogating the priest and they say, "Where's this guy got?" And he said, "Well, wherever you've taken the Jews," mm. and it's up to that point. You know, obviously the the 
the German soldiers have been quite nice, the SS turn up, they're quite evil, and it's, it's just that moment that makes you remember, oh, actually, yeah, this is 1941. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very... It's a little throwaway moment, but it's, it's quite an effective one. But it's, it's odd that the idea of Molossar being a golem was introduced for the film, because the book puts very heavy emphasis on the Holocaust. Ah. And it plays on this so much. Particularly later on where... Glaken explains what Molossar wants, what, what will happen when he's released from the keep. And the thing that really chilled me when I read it is that you've, you've read about what's happening, you've, you know what's going on, you've seen Auschwitz. If Molossar is released, the whole world will be Auschwitz. OK, because in the film I don't think it, he just wants to be free, doesn't he? Yeah, he's just bad. Yeah. I mean, the, I think you must have been watching it last week and you sent me a text which said... Uh, was it that the keeper Fenric Chatter was on the the keeper Fenric? Yeah, yeah. Um, and y- yeah, you understood the reference straight away. Yes, yeah. Listeners yeah. might not. Um, in nineteen eighty nine, there was a Doctor Who serial called The Curse of Fenric, which appears to have been ripped off wholesale from the keep. It is, uh, but it's interesting because that's not often the, the source that's always given for The Curse of Fenric is the fog. You know, horrible yes. things coming out of the fog. But obviously this was stewing around in Ian Briggs' subconscious, because, yeah, I can see what you mean by that. There's so much in there that I that, that crops up in The Curse of Fenric, like uh, ancient runes being examined by a wheelchair-bound professor mm. of an ancient uh, being of pure evil being captured and being defeated but through mystical means. Uh, the World War Two setting, obviously, although yeah. because of Henrik is set in Northumbria. To the point as well where I almost expected the film to end with Eva discovering that she was pregnant, um, because that would then oh, tie in with the sort of... The, 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 there would then be an echo with the motherhood themes that, that run towards the end of the Doctor Who story, The Curse mm-hmm. of Fenway. Maybe there was, maybe it got cut out. That's often the trouble. There isn't. Um, oh, OK. But I think, I think in that case it's more specific to the arc of the Doctor's companion at the time because mm. she had that ongoing thing with, about her relationship with her mother. Yes. Um, but the fog is... The, the imagery of, of people, of these sort of zombified creatures climbing out of the sea is lifted straight from the, the fog, the mm. John Carpenter film. I did find online, while I was doing my researches, a documentary filmed on set uh, by Grampian Television. Really? But for the, of the keep? Of, of the keep, yes. Oh wow! Is that on YouTube or anywhere? Yes, it is. Okay, I'm um, definitely going to have to track that. Down. It's called the Electric Picture Show. It's apparently a regular series uh, shown on ITV, and there is some quite a bit of behind-the-scenes footage, and a fairly extensive interview with Michael Mann. Unfortunately, most of the interview is about how he got started in film well, and his inspirations for early in his career and how he's got up to where he is now. So there isn't that much about the making of the film itself. It was the film I was actually made entirely in the UK, mm. um, on location in North Wales, yes. because it looks like where vampires live. Yes, yeah. I mean, again, it, it should be said that the, the, the look of the film is brilliant. I it mean, looks beautiful. Um, the, the Romanian sets, I was, the Romanian village set, I was kind of looking at it, trying to work out whether that was just back lot, but it seems to have been built in a slate it, it was Yeah, it was built in a quarry, so yeah. it, is, it is artificial, but in a real location. And the exterior of the keep itself... It's hard to believe that that's a real place because it looks so weird Mm. and unearthly. This just giant flat wall, but with regular spikes of rock sticking out. In the the description of the book is 
it's just a small castle sticking yeah. out of a hillside. But in the film, it looks like something unearthly. Yeah, it it doesn't. It, it certainly doesn't look like a regular castle. And the inside looks bizarre as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's hard to think even... It's a very, very successful set design. And I can't think of anything else that it... There's not even anything you can compare it to, really, which is unusual sometimes, because you think sometimes with a, a good piece of set design like this, somebody else would pick it up and echo it, but it, it, it doesn't seem to have happened. No. In his interview, Michael Mann, as I say, he does talk a little bit about his ideas before the film, and he said that he wanted it to feel... wanted to lift the story away from being traditional horror, mm. as the book is to a degree, and make it more like a dream. And not so much to connect with the viewer's emotions, but with their subconscious. And okay, this, it's funny that earlier you mentioned Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining, because it really made me think of that. And also uh, David Lynch. So mm. my thinking is that maybe this is Michael Mann trying to do The Shining. Could be. Of taking a perhaps a pulpy horror novel and turning it into something more symphonic, perhaps. When did The Shining get released? 1980. 80. Because there's... You can kind, you can kind of see why this film got made, because I think it's, it's made in the wake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously, which was 81. 81, yeah. And it's also made in the wake of Poltergeist, I think, 82. And I've, Altered States? I believe that... Altered States, I think, it was 1980. 80, um, okay. but you The s- movie would have been well underway in production before Poltergeist had come out. I think. Yeah, but maybe, I, I suppose, everyone in Hollywood knows everyone else. So presumably yeah, they would have known It was that. a big production. Steve yeah. So I, I do wonder whether it was... There was just something in... The, there was that... There was something in the air at the time and people were trying to make that kind of that adult... Ghost story. Mm. Yeah, there was obviously something in the other. Like, a, like serious horror. Mm. Yes, that. Would but be. yeah, I hadn't thought of the Shining. I've, I hadn't. Really, for some reason, I thought that was a little bit later. But that makes sense as well. And it would, it would fit in, I think, with the idea of it ended up being three and a half hours long. <laughs> yes. Um, and also, my idea that maybe it's maybe the film is best watched while you're asleep, <laughs> because it would just sort of seep in mm. well the soundscape the, sound, the soundscape certainly and maybe some of the imagery and I, some I'm of the... not sure, quite sure how the imagery would get in because people tend to sleep with their eyes closed uh, you know the flickering lights and things mm. might... all, the, all the lasers yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, the, and the bright crosses I'm sure that might yes. sear their way yeah, through definitely. your eyelids and the uh, again while, while we're just talking about the soundscape and things it seems to fall off, or maybe I just stopped noticing it, but the sound design at the start of the film is very interesting in that often people will be doing... So the, 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 there's a shot, I think, of the priest... Somebody lights a cigarette, and obviously you hear the scrape of the match. Yes. And, and people will be doing multiple actions, but you will only kind of hear one sound. So I think somebody puts a, a, a rake up against a wall or something, and you kind of hear the thunk of the rake going down, but there's no other ambient noise. And it's just... It's 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 an interesting technique, but it only really seems to be done at the start. But again, whether that's because there wasn't the will once it once the film started to fall apart, there wasn't the will to carry that on, or whether it was just something that they only really meant to do at the start, or it may even be the result of incomplete 
sound editing work anyway. Well, that's the problem. I mean, the version of the key that's in the circulation mm. at the moment looks like crap. You said you'd record it. Was it recorded yes, in yeah. HD? Uh, no, it was just... Uh, just in, just in uh, standard. standard. Yeah. Um, I watched it on Netflix, and not only was it in, a, in a standard definition, it looked like it had been sourced from a VHS tape. Okay. The Channel uh, 4 copy didn't look too bad then. But. Well, um, I mean, it was serviceable. Yeah. It was watchable. But the opening titles, for example, the very beginning of the opening titles, are very small red lettering on black. Oh yes, that's very hard and to And then read. it transitions to the opening shot of the camera very slowly panning down from mm. the sky onto the advancing trucks. And again, the, the credits are very, very fine red lettering, and it's really hard to read. Yes, yeah, that's true. So they said, I don't even remember that seeing a writing credit. No. I mean, there, there would have been one. There must have been. Yeah. Logically, there must have been one. I mean, I, I sat there at the end of the film and, and worked my way through the Closing credits, just trying to see who had played who, and uh, you know, trying uh, trying to basically it's that that thing you occasionally do with older films of trying seeing if you can spot anybody at the start of their careers. Um, Almost everybody. In well, yes, yeah, Arrakis. <laughs> but yeah, Guinness is in there actually. It's a German soldier. Oh, right. Okay, I didn't spot. Uh, He's. I know who he is. Listen, I don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't spot that. But that's largely because I don't actually know who Peter Guinness is. But give He's us a got clue. a really intimidating face. Oh, okay. I think he was playing an SS officer. I didn't really recognise him, but I knew that he was. Yeah, he was just in there somewhere. I couldn't tell you a lot about the opening. I mean, as you say, it's a very, very nice pan down from the sky down through, and it's kind of a bit. It's obviously been filmed on a slightly murky day and stuff, so it's very atmospheric, and a lot of it's just sort of shapes moving up the screen as it sort of pans down and past trees and things. But I don't remember there being much in the way of obvious credits. Yeah. Well, there, there was a full yeah, set. There yeah. was a full set of opening titles. Yeah, I obviously, just didn't take that in. Again, it's. Uh, it's. I think it's partly just the choice of doing them in very mm. small print at the bottom of the screen and the fact that they're barely readable yeah. more than I think any other film that's been covered on Cinema Lambo so far this one really deserves to be properly treated mm. this deserves to have a proper re-release in a proper version maybe not the three and a half hour version maybe that was just a rough cut mm. but I mean Michael Mann has Effectively disowned it. Really? That's Although he said you know, that there's bits of design and things that he likes, and I don't think that he said anything negative about the performances because the performances yeah. are actually all very good. Yeah, yeah. But he just wasn't happy with it. It was yeah. a very unhappy experience. If he, I mean, particularly given the, the the failure of Black Hat, if he were to go back and say, well, to to Paramount, the studio that funded it, and which is refusing to release it on DVD, <laughs> I will do a new cut of this and we'll do it all nice and then you can re-release it and it's a cult movie and it'll make money mm. and if it turns out to be three and a half hours long put in an intermission perhaps yeah why not do it as a roadshow release I mean it sort of worked for The Hateful Eight which nearly made its money back <laughs> and apparently isn't that bad I, I, I couldn't possibly comment but uh, we're, I, 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 I don't think I've seen a Quentin Tarantino film since Ooh. I accident. I was flicking through the film. I was flicking through the channels. I accidentally saw five minutes of Destiny Turns on the radio, and that was enough to put me right off Quentin Tarantino <laughs> forever. That might not be his most representative film. Serves him right. Um, in, actually, funnily enough, I, my favourite of his films is Inglorious Bastards, the another World War Two. Mm. Um, 
because I usually find it completely insufferable. Are you Quentin Tarantino or World War Two epics? Oh, I love World War Two yes, epics. Um, anything with Nazis in, I'm in. But um, him, I find oh, yeah. obnoxious. Yes, yeah, so I, 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 I can't say I'm a fan. I, I saw I saw Reservoir Dogs at the cinema. Actually, thinking yeah. about it, um, really liked it. Like Pulp Fiction, and it's kind of been downhill ever since for me. <laughs> I've, I mean, his early work I just really didn't get. I didn't understand mm. why it was so highly regarded. And eventually I saw Jackie Brown and I thought, oh, that's quite good. Well, that's often cited as his best film, isn't and it? The reason being that it's the one that's based on something else. Oh, okay. um, it's based on a Elmore Leonard novel. But then he had his comeback with Kill Bill. And the mm-hmm. first people thought, well, he's just done a straight down the line action movie. And this is pretty good. There is no masterpiece, but it's nicely stylized and everything. And then in Glorious Boss, I thought, oh, this is great. This is this. It's got the great dialogue, it's got the great characters, it's uh, a whole load of great sketches which <laughs> don't really work as a single assembled right. whole, but individually they're great. I mean, there are there's subplots there that you could cut out and that wouldn't make any difference at all to the movie. Yeah. But the individual bits yeah. are all terrific. It's a movie of moments rather than a movie. Yeah, it's like a collage. Mm. Uh, and then Django Unchained was more of the same and it wasn't so good and I didn't see The Hateful Lane. <laughs> Because of the weird boycott by Cineworld. Oh, that's Decided right. Yes, not to yeah, show they... it in any of their cinemas. Yes. Out of spite. <laughs> yes. Now, Glake can uh, spend the first half of the story to sort of hang around. He doesn't do well. Else. Um, he wakes up. There's a there's a bit of a, a a bit of a light show. He wakes up in bed. He gets his stuff together. Then he goes off and hires a boat. I think. Yeah. And then there's. <laughs> There's a there's a sequence of him, of, of a boat going across the Mediterranean, which I may have been a bit impatient, but seemed to go on forever. But I've subsequently read a review of the film which described that scene as haunting. So maybe I'm just being unfair. Well, again, there's there's more cut out there because originally yeah. the um, the owner of the boat tries to kill Blake oh, in the night right, yeah. to steal the thing that he's carrying yeah, with him the, of value. Which yes. we don't. Which well, again, it's different in the book and the film, and in when in the book. When it's explained what this valuable thing is that he has, it, everything connects together in a very clever, neat way. Mm. Which sort of can nicely counterbalances the fact that he goes around calling himself Glenn. <laughs> and that... Although the, the, the different appearances of Molossar... In the film, Molossar looks fantastic. In places. I might have to disagree with you a couple of times, but when he's the column of smoke... Yeah, with, it's like amazing. Two, with two burning eyes. Yeah, I can't. I, that's one of these occasions when I've looked. I, I've, I've looked at the film and gone, I can't work out how you've done that. I, I know you're not using computers, <laughs> and now I'm at the limit of my knowledge. I so, think I know. I think it might be that they've kind of. I think they're pumping smoke through a mask and blowing it away with a fan. Yeah. And then at the same time, I think then maybe they've run the footage in reverse or something. Yeah. Uh, but it's astonishingly effective. It's, it's such a. It's just so simple. It's mm. he's just a, a man-shaped cloud with some big, scary eyes, yeah. and that's it. And it looks so creepy. Yeah. And then he sort of appears against it, and he's sort of half formed as a man. Yeah. And, and, then, then, and at the end, he looks like a 
a kind of stylized stone like, statue. He looks. There's one shot where I'm watching it at the end, and I suddenly went, "Oh, he looks like Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters." <laughs> and I don't know if somebody was just kind of nodding back to that as a joke, but he does look like a sort of stone bust of Vigo the Carpathian. Carpathia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's it. I do wonder if somebody was doing a bit of research when they made Ghostbusters two and did it as a as a joke. Who knows? But it's the in it's the indeterminate stage where he's kind of rebuilding himself and he's a mess of sort of muscle and tendons. It's I'll bet it looked fantastic on the design sheet. It kind of falls into that awkward gap between what somebody's imagined and what the production techniques at the time could actually do. And and there was and th- that was the point when I sat there and went, Ah, that's a shame because it you you see it for slightly too long, and you I, I I sort of thought it was too obviously a man in a suit. But mm. did you know who the man in the suit was? No, it's the same guy who played Bib Fortuna in um, <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Really, that Jabba the Hutt's vizier, the guy with the long, big, the, long, the, curly the head. Long tentacles. Yeah. No, no, the guy. He's got like the big, long, curly head that then wraps around his neck. Yeah, yeah. I always thought they were tentacles, but. He's just got a long brain. Yeah, I suppose that's true. He probably it's, needs it's it. It's a brain that doubles as a scarf. Yeah, yeah. In the book, where we finally see C in inverted commas, Molosov, guy in a cloak. Really? Wearing, and, it's a, and he's wearing a blouse. What? I thought, that's not, no, don't say he's wearing a blouse. I mean, apparently that's, it's derived from the word for a military tunic. But, yeah. Well, okay, but, why not just say that? Because otherwise it makes him sound It makes him sound like, like a, a new tit. romantic. Yeah. He starts singing about being a dandy highwayman. <laughs> um, this is, so F, F. Paul Wilson is the author of the book, isn't he? Yeah. Now, I mean, earlier I talked about the fact that Stephen King didn't like the uh, film version of The Shining. With the best will in the world, the fact that F. Paul Wilson called his hero Glenn and describes him as wearing a blouse... No, 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 no. Glaken uh, is dressed normally. Yeah, Mollusk is wearing, wearing a blouse and, and a cloak. Um, I'm beginning to think that maybe F. Paul Wilson is no Stephen King. Am I being a little bit unfair in this? I mean, what, what was the writing style like? Um, very good, actually. Okay. Oh. And that's the thing. I mean, the, narratively, it's very mm. clear. Um, there's a lot of, sort of digressions about um, the evil in the world, the idea that this is the perfect time for Mollusk, for Mollusk yeah, yeah. reawakened because of the evil of war and fascism. Mm. And that all works very well. It's just, when he gets down to these kinds of details, yeah. they're thinking, this is really a good idea. I mean, I can understand him not having had the same ideas for the design of Mollusk for the film, where he's yes. a column of smoke with some eyes looking out of it. That's quite specific. But no, it's just yeah. like a guy in a cloak, and he's got scary but human eyes and scraggly teeth and when he finally mm. at, the, at the end where Glacon says oh you can drop this pretense now and you see Molossar as he really is he's not wearing the cloak anymore and his teeth aren't weird and he's just the guy right I thought well well I understand the point that it's trying to be the most evil human yeah. possible the channeling this pure force of all that is destructive mm. and chaotic but it doesn't look very good yeah and the and it's it just it's so odd that in the film where they have constraints 
it's so much more interesting and yeah. vivid than in the book where you can do anything you want and, and it's, it's just, and a, it's just a guy yeah yeah it's old isn't it I mean it's interesting as well you made a, a, a point there about the fact that the second world war was the ideal time for Molossar to wake up and there's a very very throwaway moment in the film where they talk about the priest kind of goes mad in five minutes and starts ranting and raving and there's a throwaway line about what's happening in the keep is infecting the village and is driving yes. the villagers mad but it's never really picked up on no again that's a victim of the cuts yeah. um Alexandru, the caretaker of the keep, oh, yes, yeah. who uh, talks to Vermin at the beginning, his two sons help him and he's grooming mm. them to look after the keep after he dies. And those scenes were cut from the film. Okay. And in fact, the character of the priest isn't in the book at all. Oh, right. Other characters in the village have bigger roles. Like the innkeeper mm. takes most of his place, a man called Iuliu. Right. Which I will give the benefit of the doubt and assume that's a reasonable Romanian name and isn't like calling. Defender of Light, Glenn. Not that I have anything against people called Glenn. No. Not that it's a silly name or anything. It's just not appropriate for no. that character. And it's not even particularly... It's not like uh, Molossar. You can't even reverse it and come out with anything. Nelg. <laughs> yes, maybe not. He could have called him Nelg. Possibly, yeah, yeah. But... No, it's a, I'm glad Alexandru survives in the film then. It, w- it would kind of have been a bit of a downer to see him killed by his son. Well, it's not that he survives, it's that he just doesn't turn yeah, up Yeah, he, he just disappears. He's, right, he's, right, he's, he's one of these characters, he's right at the start of the film, and then that's it. He kind of just walks off screen, doesn't he? He, he, he gives the German... He gives, uh, he, he gives Vermin the exposition. Yeah, and then goes. Yeah. Says nobody spends the night in the cave. And no, then... and, and no one's ever died there mm. because they're driven out by nightmares. Yes, and I like I like that because it's, it's you're not going to be hurt physically, but it's going to be the worst thing yeah. you can imagine. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a terrific idea, and and the idea, and again. <sighs> keep coming back to the shining. I didn't I know, because the shining I... casts such a huge yeah. shadow over this kind of more serious, more mm. adult-targeted horror movies. Yeah. It's just interesting how The Shining seems to embody a lot of concepts that then come out in other things. And yes, yeah, so the idea of a, bu- a place that's been built over a site of uh, ancient evil, although I think in the... <sighs> in The Shining, it's an Indian burial. Ground, yeah, which is a li- Stephen King's kind of go-to for ooh, spooky, when you can't really think of anything else. Yeah. Um... But then again, when you've, when you've written a book like Pet Cemetery, who cares if it's a, a, an Indian burial ground again, because Pet Cemetery is a brilliant book. But, uh, and The Shining as well is terrific. Interesting that you say that Pet Cemetery is a brilliant book, because it's a shit film. Oh, well, <laughs> it's, got, it's got, bless you, it's got Paul Tashley Yar from Star Trek The Next Generation in. That was her film career, it's wasn't it? It's got Fred Gwynn in it, but even he can't Fred? Say. Yeah. From, um... From the Monsters. Monsters. Really? Who's... Yeah. Oh, he's the, the guy... He's sort of the friendly neighbour... He's the guy over the road, isn't he? Yeah. I hadn't realised that. What's a really great place to live with young children? A house that's right on a road where there are constantly giant trucks going back and forth and never stopping or looking where they're going. I can't see a problem with that. Particularly not if there's an evil um, place that brings the dead back to life. As monsters that then eat your family. Yes. I believe that the book may have been written while Stephen King was in his... It's extreme. Yeah, yeah. Fans. I mean, sadly, this is not the place to talk about Pet Cemetery. But yeah, I think even Stephen King—it's it, the book that, that Stephen King looks at and goes, 
Ooh. <laughs> I think one of the books that Stephen King looks at and says, I don't remember writing this. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> no one noticed... Oh, yes, uh, now Kuzer has, uh, strikes a bargain, or rather Molotov strikes a mm. bargain with Kuzer because Molotov needs someone to do his bidding. And part of the bargain is that he lifts... He, uh, lifts. He cures him. Yes, he yeah. disability. It's, I think, left a little vague in the film, but in the book it's stated that he suffers from scleroderma. They do mention a disease that he's suffering from, and that I, yes, I, 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 I think it might even be referred to as scleroderma. Which is a hardening and a stiffening of the joints, and also premature aging, because it says in the mm. film that he's 48. Yes. Which I think... And there's an implication that it's a yeah. circulation, a, a problem with the circulation, because they, the, the Eva says this room's so cold he'll have gangrene in sort of three hours or something. Yes. But I think, I, I because it's said that his, it damages his tendons and his joints, but mm. also scolioderma makes it sound like the hardening of arteries or the hardening yeah. of blood vessels. But um, anyway, um, Molossar cures him of this, and uh, he is youthed to how Ian McKellen looked at the time, which is sort of young, old. Yeah, yeah, just sort of middle, fairly middle-aged, basically. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, the character's supposed to be 48. Yeah. Um, and I think Ian McKellar was a, a, a few years younger than that. But the thing that's really odd is no one notices. Yeah, I don't know if that's just meant to be a vague commentary on the, the, the fact that the SS just look at him and just see a Jew. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's visibly younger and visibly healthier. I, I think at one point Gabriel Byrne's character... Who's Kampfner, isn't he? Kampfer. Kampfer. Kampfer, sorry. Kampfer uh, has a throwaway line about this place. Seems you look to agree up, with yeah, you. this place is, yeah. But he's about the only person that comments on it. Apart from his daughter, he's the only person that comments on it. Yeah, his daughter uh, notices it relatively quickly. Mm. But to be it, fair, she has just been picked up by a column of smoke with glowing red eyes and carried through the corridors. Yeah. There is the that rape sequence. Yeah, that's. Which is. I mean. Whenever you're portraying rape in a film, it's always going to be difficult because yeah. there's context, there's necessity to the story, there's so much you have to think about to try and ensure that it's not going to be any more horrible than you need it to be. It's tricky because, obviously, Molossar has to rescue Eva. And that and, and you can almost reverse engineer it, and you go, okay, Molossar has to rescue Eva, therefore Eva has to be placed in jeopardy. How can we place Eva in jeopardy? In because you can't kind of can't just have the SS threatening to shoot her. I guess I don't know. It's the trick. The SS are already evil. You don't need to establish that they're evil with a, an attempted rape scene. It's it's not a mistake to have it in there, but it's awkward. It's something. Yeah, it's. Well, the thing that I liked in the book is that she's actually attacked twice. I was going to say, how does it, how does she get rescued in the book? Um, in a very similar way. Right. Um, again, the two soldiers attack her. Molossar steps in and uh, turns them into coleslaw. Nice. But there's a scene earlier on mm. where she's attacked and she's found by vermin. Oh, right. And, and Vermin, being essentially a decent person, intervenes mm. and protects her. And that then endears him somewhat to Kuza. Yeah. 
Because there's the whole question later on about the cross. Yes. Where they have where there is this, this silver cross that winds up serving no purpose whatsoever in the story. Does it? Um, and it's it's this odd red herring because in the film, Kuza has been given a cross by a friend earlier on, which he carries with him as a kind of not as a, a religious symbol, obviously because mm. he's Jewish, but because. It's a symbol, you know, there is goodness... A symbol of faith. A symbol of faith, that there is goodness in the world, because this this Christian who gave me this wanted goodness for me, and his uh, differing faiths were irrelevant. Mm. In the book, Kuza tells Vermin, oh, I need a cross for my experiments, for for my researches into what's going on. And Vermin says, ah, yeah, now one of the dead men wore a cross, so I'll get that. So he gives him the silver cross that's on one of the corpses. And it turns out, I didn't really need it. Yeah, it at doesn't all. do it. I don't know if it's. There is a sequence where. Uh, I mean, it's it's just sort of. It's because it doesn't go anywhere. It's kind of. A, I don't know if it's kind of a narrative double bluff because um, obviously you're back to the same thing that that Molossar is pretending to be a golem and is pretending to be, and I don't. I'm a long way from from knowing anything about Judaism, but I, I know that golems are associated with the Judaic faith in some way. Yes. Um, but I don't know the details and I don't know if then there's meant to be some important symbology in the fact that Christianity is the religion that built on the Judaic faith and they think that this symbol of Christianity is enough to keep away this monster which presumably everyone believes is is of Jewish origin at the time don't know it's yeah I'm not I don't know enough about religion to be able to say one way or the other but I think there might be sort of a couple of slightly symbolic elements going on. But yes, in the end, it's just irrelevant. Well, um, uh, because um, in the book, Malasar is posing as a vampire, when mm. he appears to be repel- repelled by this cross, it then sends Kuza into a tailspin of, of crisis in his faith. Right. Because if the cross works, that means that it has genuine power. Mm. Therefore, Jesus was the true Messiah, yes. and he is not as in the Judaic faith. Sounds a weird thing to say. In no. Ju- the Judaic faith. And now I know. In Judaism. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry, sorry to sound weird there, listener. They're, yeah, they're great people. Um, <laughs> they're a great bunch of lads. <laughs> they are, though. Um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. It's like, sorry, um, no, but that, in, in, in the Jewish faith, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They are still waiting for the coming yes, of the Messiah. So, the, so yeah. this is, oh, then... But the Messiah has been, has been and, gone, and, yeah. and he's gone, and we killed him, or, or you know, yeah. the, some Jewish people did. Yeah. Not not to point fingers, and then that shatters his faith, and it lets Molossar get his okay. claws in. I mean, I don't know as well whether there's there's obviously an element at the end, or, or maybe in in the original screenplay there was an element at the end because, of course, the Gabriel Burns SS officer character shoots Jogan Pinchow to get the cross as partly as part of the end of film Massacre to get the supporting yeah, cross out of the yeah, way. because everybody has to be killed off at this point but also partly because he wants to get hold of the cross and I don't know whether that could also be seen as part of the SS officer then effectively buying into the Jewish believing that this is a character from Jewish mythology and thinking that a, a symbol of Christianity might be enough to hold it it's 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 I, it's a bit muddled. Or yeah, maybe... It's only when he comes, I think, face to face with Mollison, mm. 
and realizes that what's been happening actually is supernatural. Yeah. That he then raises the cross. This is the thing. This is supernatural. Hopefully, this will work. Yeah, this is true. And of course, it's something that's often glossed over. Hitler was Catholic. Well, he yes, wasn't yeah. a good Catholic. No, clearly. But no, there he was very a... rarely attended communion. He mm. was a bad Catholic. Yeah. So that, that there is that element there of you know, there was Christianity bound in with the mm. whole Nazism cult. The deaths of uh, Vermin and Kempfer in the book are very, very different. Oh, okay. And it stretches all the way back to foreshadowing right early in the novel. Vermin passes the time uh, by painting. Okay. And there is actually a line where he and um, Kempfer are talking and uh, Kempfer says, oh, you're trying to paint a mystery or something about telling him what's been going mm. on. But uh, he decided early on while they're just hanging around in the keep and nothing's happening to paint a, a, a portrait and not a portrait but a landscape yeah. of the, the view of the village through his window and it is later that's, that he's inadvertently painted in the image of a hanged man and eventually that's uh. what happens to him that he investigates what's going on in the well the, the giant cavern mm. underneath the keep in the book it's just another level of the cellar which is, I think that's fine, but in the, in the film, they, they pull out the, the yeah. stone and they look inside and there is a gigantic yeah. cavern with a weird sort of altar it's a place. Much, it's a much more mythological idea. Mm. Uh, there's something about, and this is what we keep coming back to about, about the book. I'm going to use the word bathos. I'm not sure if I'm using it in the right context, but I've always wanted to use it Hopefully convers- I'll be able to work out what yeah. the word means from what you're about to uh, say. I'm going to try using it conversationally in an attempt to sound smart. Um, there's something very pathetic about his, you know, calling a character Glenn, referring to the monster wearing a blouse, having the big mythological cavern under the castle just be a cellar. There's, it's this thing, things that could be big and significant keep being weighed down by being made really ordinary, it's just odd, hmm. and it's all—it's just odd the way that the, the, the F. Paul Wilson seems to keep undercutting himself. Yeah, yeah. but in the film, is consciously going for, or subconsciously, mm. going for a much more dreamlike yes, terms. Yeah. Giant cavern that couldn't possibly fit into the space underneath the castle. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is, I think, that it, it's dug into the mm. the. Sort of the hills in itself, and and I think in the in the in the book it says the subcellar oh this goes on some distance, yeah. oh and it's cut into the actual mountain itself. Because it's a, it's a terrific special effects shot, I think, isn't it? Where it's the German amazing. sword, yeah, so much that they use it again later in the movie. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't blame them because it's it, it, it's one of those times where you just think, no, that's that's really nice because it's a tracking shot that goes on for what ten twenty seconds. If yeah. that, it just keeps pulling back and pulling back, and eventually. You see this tiny dot tiny, of, yeah. of, of where the soldier's peeping out through the yeah. hole, and it just until it's just like one pixel yeah. on the screen. The romance between Glaken and Eva. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and that's again, it's some of the cuts, they just trim mm. that down massively. And in the book, it's written from Eva's point of view so much. Um, you really get a sense that she's enraptured by this mysterious man who yeah. has shown her kindness and um, he, and he comes across really oddly uh, in the book as quite cheerful okay. a lot of the time 
And you get a sense that maybe that's a front for something else that he's just doing to try and sort of fit in with normal people. Mm. Whereas in the film, he's just creepy and weird all it, the time. In the film, he's in the, he's in the room in the inn that Eve was planning to rent and says, is this the only room that has a view of the keep? And I think that's, that's kind of their meet cute, isn't it? Yeah. Really? And in the book, that, that's sort of, there's a similar scene in the book, but it's, it's actually more like a meet cute. And he is much more deliberately trying not to be strange. Right. I mean, Scott Glenn's a great actor, but I'm not sure he's the best choice for that role. He's just a bit too odd. Because you need the contrast where all the way through the movie, mm. really, he seems he could just be an all man. And then at the end, yes, yeah. in the final battle between him and Molisar, he becomes like a an almost camera negative version of because he seems to be wearing like sort of prosthetics to build up his muscles and things. Possibly, and he's yeah. wearing funny contact lenses so that he looks mm. like a mirror, appropriately a mirror image of Molisar because one of the running things is that Glaken has no reflection. Yes, yeah. Uh, like a vampire. Yes. Again, that's again it's sort of all these bits muddled together yeah. in the story that don't really join up. So I think maybe they shouldn't have cast Scott Glenn. But, but because he's top bill, I think, well, maybe mm. casting Scott Glenn was a condition of the film getting made because he's the big new star. Yeah, it could be. I mean, it's difficult to know. It's such an odd role because you are back to the thing that he's technically... I guess he's the protagonist? Well, that's the odd thing, is that he's only the protagonist in like the last third of the yeah. story because that's the only part where he actually does anything that's relevant. It looks at the start like it's going to be Jürgen Pinchot's character that's yeah. going to be... And then he he never quite fades into the background, but then it looks like it's going to be Ian McKellen, and then it, he kind of becomes a bit more... It, it's just... And then he gets corrupted by... Yeah. Molisar, and then it's sort of it's sort of handed off at each yeah. at each act break of the of the story, and that can work, mm. but it helps if you don't cut out two hours of the film. Yes, yeah. it helps if you know it, it makes sense. And that's the frustrating thing when you talk because you you start to talk about things like symbology or the sound design or the edit or whatever, and you think, oh, maybe it would have been different if if the film had been properly finished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem. It, it's not really releasable, I think, as it is. It's clearly not. I wonder. I can't imagine anyone looking at that and thinking, this is the best version no. of what we had. No, I mean, it's possible it's the one that's got clo- something closest to a followable... Because I, I, I went into this and I was trying to work out what I remembered about it. And I remember it as, I remember it as being incomprehensible. And it's not actually; it's not incomprehensible. No. It's got a very, very. It's just got a very sparse storyline, if anything. It's it's very dense with events. Yeah. But that can serve to obscure the actual thread of the story. Mm. And again, with that kind of weird thing about the role of protagonist shifting during the course of the story, I mean, like all the scenes of uh, Glaken's journey. Hmm. You could cut all those out. Yes, yeah. really. I mean, there's this the, up to the point where he's riding on a motorbike and he meets some border guards, and his eyes go. Ugh. Yeah, it doesn't. You could almost lose that, and right up to him arriving in the village, and that if you were to shoot that in a certain way to say, right, this is something mm. significant. This is almost this is this is achieving a kind of balance now because you have the evil and the good. Yeah. And again, there is that problem where you need to decide who the 
blacklisted. Yes. Yeah. Um, ultimately, uh, at the end of the movie, the, the, the protagonist is really the only major character who's left alive. Yeah, which I, is Ava. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm kind of if you go on the fact that last person standing, maybe Eva was the protagonist because she's the point of view character really for yeah. pretty much the second half of the book. Because she works with the... She works with the Nazis. She works with the Nazis, but she, she also... She's working with her father, she's spending time with Glaken, and it's about her relationship with Glaken as well. She's effectively the only character that moves between all the other... The Germans tend to stay in the keep, the villagers stay outside. Nobody really... Everybody's in their own separate place, and she's the only character that kind of moves between all the different groups and interacts with everybody. Yes. But she doesn't do anything not until really the final confrontation mm. or the point yes the point when she's she's there with uh, she confronts her father uh, and that's that's the moment uh, and she I mean that, 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 that's, that whole sequence in the book is, is great mm. uh, of her bringing the uh, the uh, the talisman to um, Glaken mm. and that and, and the creating the weapon that um, defeats Molossar. Mm. The, uh, Molossar makes the classic villain mistake of uh, going, and now you know, prove your loyalty to me by killing your daughter. And you think, that's never going to work. You know what that really reminded me of? The story of Abraham. Interesting. Because who, wanted, course, who wanted God who God yeah. wanted to prove his loyalty by killing his child. And we're back to Judaism and the Old Testament and the Judaic faith and stuff like that, so I do wonder whether there is stuff that I'm not picking up and on. that's probably. not in the book. Oh, okay. So, again, it's... There's, mm. there's all these bits jumbled together. Um, what we were talking about earlier, um, the deaths of Vermin and Kempfer. Mm. Um, Kempfer ends up confronting Molossar and, and Molossar kills him. Um, but in the book it's much more complicated okay <laughs> um, Vuman investigates the noises coming from the cellar he finds that the bodies of all the soldiers that they'd, been left, they'd left down there mm. because it was the coldest part of the building and just sort of the yeah. easiest place to store the bodies have gone they have been reanimated by Molossar to dig in the, oh, sun, the okay. cellar to dig out the the talisman the thing that the, yeah. the object that is keeping Molossar captive. Molossar uses his powers to cloud Vorman's mind and makes him the hanged man. Right. Kempfer finds his body and says, Ah, good. Ah, the man who... Because, there's, again, there's a whole backstory where they knew each other. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so they completely left out of the movie, yeah. as far as I can tell. They knew each other. Uh, in World War I, Vorman was a hero, but Kempfer was a coward. Right. And Vorman was the only one who had witnessed Kempfer's cowardice. But now Vorman is dead, Kempfer is delighted, so mm. right, well, he, he killed himself, clearly, and I'm going to take a huge pleasure in reporting that, and I'm going to really laugh in the face of his widow and children. He's a um, lovely man, isn't he? But because, of course, Molossar can animate dead bodies, Vorman uh, reaches out and crushes oh, okay. Kempfer around the neck mm. and um, Kemp forgets to manages to turn around enough to see Vuman smiling as he's dying and it's left ambiguous as to whether or not it's Vuman smiling or 
it's Mollus I'm making him yeah. smile. But I thought, oh, that's a shame because Boomer was still like the one nice person. Because yeah. Kuzer ends up corrupted by Molossar's yeah. evil. And he's not terribly... I mean, he doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant person because he's sort of shackled his daughter to himself yes, yeah. to act as nurse and basically controls her whole and life. D- and does it in quite, that, in quite a self-pitying way where he does that thing of going, oh, you mustn't pay all your attention to me, a poor old man, you must go off and you must be... Free. And of course, in a way, it's kind of a very passive-aggressive way of yeah. making sure that somebody will stick around because mm. inevitably they're going to go, oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly leave you. So yeah, he's maybe not necessarily the nicest person in the world. Um, he does have... I mean, he is redeemed... Yes, at the end, yeah. where he is able to finally shake off Molossar's mm. control. Um, but uh, one thing that, again, it sort of struck a chord with me, when uh, all the, the, the remaining German soldiers are wiped out, apparently it was, that was an effect sequence that was going to happen. I was going to say, it just happens off-screen, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, just hear yeah. them go, ah! And then uh, Kempfer runs out into the courtyard of the keep and finds what really made me think of those weird... Artworks, those kind of model layouts by the Chapman brothers of death camps, right. battlefields, as visions of hell, mm. of twisted bodies and pain and a wreckage of machinery. It's an interesting one, actually. Would Because it is an effective sequence, would it have been more or less effective if you'd seen it and you'd been able to go, ooh, at the nice special effects. Or is it more effective to just suddenly come across it and to see that, that, that everybody is just dead? Or would it have been better to see it happen? It's, without, again, without seeing the finished film, who knows? Well, I, I think this is one of the bits that was affected by the yeah. death of the visual effects supervisor because it was, I think, it was properly finished. Yeah. But I think it's more effective if you just see the result. If you yeah. just find this horrible landscape because that's shocking. Yes. Whereas if you're watching the effects and you're thinking, oh, the effects are good, yeah. that's not what you should be thinking when you're watching this. You should be thinking, oh, isn't this horrible? So at, when um, Kempfer confronts Molossar, and mm. um, Kempfer says, who are you? Molossar says, I am from you. Okay. Not in the book. And that really, it really just underlines the whole thing very simply that Molossar is the embodiment of the evil of which man is capable. Yeah, and, and again... <sighs> I don't know whether this is accidental, but there's this whole thing that he's the embodiment of what man is capable of and of what's going on in the outside world. But at the same time, he's affecting events in the outside world with the village by driving all the villagers inside. But it never really goes anywhere because of the butchered edit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I just thought that was... Yeah. It just... Just four words, very simply saying, if all of the evil of Nazism, fascism, hatred, prejudice, everything was distilled into one being. Yes. And then just bleeding outwards into the world. Like the Republicans. (laughs) I'm sure that Donald Trump is kind to kittens. Donald Trump is a Nazi. (laughs) I'm not even... Everything he says... Oh, there are people... Well, you know, people are saying that there's things happening. So, no, people aren't saying that. It's you saying that. So the um, the the talisman is unearthed from the bottom of the keep. Um, Ian McKellen finds it in a hole. There's something. <laughs> it's very 
for a film that up to this point has been very, very, you know, the cavern is a great mythological space, the cape is a weird design, and then the talisman is just in a hole in the floor. It's and this is the point where things start to go a bit wonky, into, because the talisman itself is a is a torch. It looks like a torch, yeah. It looks, but it's it's the same shape as the crosses that have been on the wall everywhere. Yes, you're right. It is, isn't it? Because there's a very odd moment at the end where Glaken Glaken puts the talisman on the end of his magic drain stick. pipe. <laughs> His uh, weapon is a drain pipe. And this is the point where the, the design work just really falls through the floor mm. right at the end. And there's a whole complicated sequence where the, the edges of the talisman fold down. Yeah. And it's shot in close up and, it, and you see all the intricate mechanism. And it's obviously meant, to, it's shot in such a way that you're meant to go, yes, this is significant. But there's been nothing to give it that significance. And yeah, it's just very, very disappointing prop work. There's some real. There's some sequences where Ian McKellen is walking along, and it's obvious that the talisman has just got a torch battery. Um, yeah, yeah. Hell, it, it's got a torch built into it, and he's kind of been told to shine it up a bit, but don't point it directly at the camera because then everyone will see it's a torch. Mm. It's it's a real shame, and it it's just odd. But maybe it rec- again, maybe that's a sign of the circumstances the film is being made under. In the book, I mean, this is one one of the odd details in the book that gets it right. Okay, that. It's not a shape like a torch or anything. It's not a crucifix. It's the hilt of a sword. Yeah, that makes more sense. And the weapon that Glaken has been carrying in this long case, it's not a drain pipe. It's a long blade. Yeah. Which fits into the hilt, and that is the weapon that can defeat Molossar, a magic sword. Yeah. Which is, mythologically, it works. Yes, yeah. But I just think, when I read that, I thought, oh... Makes so much more sense, mm. <laughs> and the the, the the design of the um, the crosses on the walls aren't the, the cross piece isn't flat; it curls up at the end. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually hilt shaped, and, and it's used in the, all the way through the book as the um, you know the, where you normally have like the three asterisks. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, so change, change of time, yeah. It's used as that. That's very clever. And I thought oh, that's just a nice little yeah. thing, but it also repeats that symbol mm. for the reader all the way through. Right, of course, it's it's the hilt of a sword. Right, oh, that's interesting. Because I think the ending of the film is shot... I certainly didn't even pick up on the fact that the talisman was the same shape as the crosses on the walls. Oh. Uh, possibly I wasn't paying attention. I yeah, have, I, I, I would have thought that was... I may have an obvious, Because it's, it's the symbol of the talisman. It's, it's yeah. keeping Molossar in. Yeah. Um, and then we have the, 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 the final battle between Glaikon and Molossar, which... That was the point where everyone just gives up. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a light show, isn't it? There's some very what there's what I think of as some very early eighties effects. Again, if you watch Altered States, if you watch Poltergeist, you will see the same kind of effects being used in other films made around that time. Yes, um, or even Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the big climax true. of that, where, where the Nazis are being killed by mm. the light of God, it looks a lot like that and in a sense. <sighs> It's a shame, in a way, that this was... The special effects guy... We, have we, we've named the special effects guys Wally Vivas, haven't we? Yeah. He'd had a massively long and distinguished career. I mean, it's, I think I looked up... He'd started out working on things like Things to Come in 1938, all the way through, obviously, 2001, all those kinds of films. Um, 
worked on Diamonds Are Forever. So you know, oh, you know that all the classics. Yes, um, and there's, it's a shame that the last film he worked on finishes with a fairly generic special effects sequence. I, I, I just, I'd like to imagine that if he'd lived a little bit longer, he would have given it something a bit more special and a bit more memorable. It's just a shame. Well, again, the ending was cobbled together, mm. um, partly from reshoots, partly from Michael Mann not really knowing what he wants to do. Yeah. One, in the book, it's slightly more oddly framed. It's, it's a kind of, partly then a chase through the keep. Right. With Molossar fleeing from Glaken and setting all the the zombies after him and using his powers to pull the keep down around right. him until eventually they reach the battlements at the top and the whole of the inside of the building has collapsed down. Right. So it's just the outer wall with the with the crosses on. And they fight and um Molossar tries to push the uh, tries to push Glaken and the the sword over the side, which will get the talisman outside, outside the, the wall, wall. Yes, and that will yeah. free him. Yeah. But as he pushes him, Glaken stabs him through the back with the uh, with the sword, and they fall. And when Eva looks for him, she finds only the broken sword, right. and the hilt now turned to lead. Okay. That had, I think, that was broadly the idea of the original ending. Mm. But that in some way they would fall inside the keep rather than outside. Yeah. And there would be some kind of 2001 style light show as they fall through another dimension. Okay. And something along those lines yeah. was filmed. Um, what actually happens in the movie is Molossar kind of disappears and then Glaker gets stuck through a hole in the wall. Yes, and I've subsequently read a, I can't remember if it was a review or a commentary on the film that, said, that suggested that Glaken is becoming the block. So Molossar's yes. going back to where he, he came from. And Glaken is becoming the new block that will hold him prisoner. Yes. It's not really clear on screen. No, just he's I, just being pulled to a hole. Yeah. The, the ending of I mean the ending of the book then Kuzer is dead because there are rats everywhere and Molossar's been using the rats and they've been nibbling at him and right. he dies of blood loss, which is sort of a bit sudden and weird. Mm. Um, leaving uh, Magda, I should say, that's the only remaining character, and as she walks away, she hears a sound from behind her and it's Glaken oh, right. climbing out of the the gorge outside the keep, and he looks in a puddle and he sees a reflection. So he is now right. he is now mortal, and they can live together. Mm. The ending of the finished cut of the movie, the release cut of the movie, um, Glaken you know, climbs through the little hole in the wall. Um, the people of the village come out and they help Kuza away. Magda starts to follow. Uh, Eva starts to follow mm. them. She stops, turns back and looks, freeze frame. And the movie just stops. Yeah, and it just ends, doesn't it? There is a TV version with an extended ending. Another thing oh. that I found on, in my researches. She goes back inside the keep and goes down into the cavern and finds Glaken there by a puddle. And they look in the puddle together and he has his reflection. Oh, okay. That's the, t- the that's a TV version. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you know? I, I'm just just fascinated by the idea that obviously, I when I got this, I recorded my version of TV, but it's film four who were a bit more dutiful about showing the film version rather than the TV version. Yeah. Well, this is uh, it's one of those occasions where there's mm. extra footage that's been cut in, yeah. like the TV version of Halloween, oh. where they famously had to make a lot of cuts in order to get it down for pre prime time viewing because obviously that's what you do with a 
horror movie, as you show it at 7 o'clock in the evening. But they added in a whole bunch of new scenes that were shot during the making of Halloween 2. Oh, okay. Um, and I have a copy of that at home, because it was released on DVD by mistake, apparently. Oh, it's right. never been re-released. And that's quite interesting, yeah. because it fills in all sorts of interesting details and that kind of thing. There used to be two versions of the Woody Allen film Sleeper floating around. There was a version that I saw on BBC Two, um, and a version then that I've subsequently got on DVD, and I can't remember. In one of them, I think they have a, a meal, and Woody Allen kind of starts clowning around with the food. And it, it's been so long since I've seen it, I, I'm struggling to remember. I think he kind of clowns around in the same way that Charlie Chaplin did. Um, and that's how he seduces Diane Keaton's character in one version. And in the other version, um, I think there's just a sort of conversation on the stairwell. It's, it's just a... And it, it, but it was one of these things that really threw me, because I, I picked it up on DVD watching, and went, well, that's... There's a whole five-minute sequence that I don't recognise, and I've never really been able to get to the bottom of what the difference was, but, again, presumably just different versions floating around. Mm. There was a final scene that doesn't seem to be in any version of the movie that would have followed on from the TV cut, or at least what appears right. to have been Michael Mann's preferred ending, of... Glaken, Eva, and Kuza escaping from Romania by boat. And I've seen pictures that prove that was actually filmed. Okay. But that would have tied the whole thing into a happy ending where mm. Molossar is defeated, Eva and Glaken can live together as a, as a real relationship. Kuza's still around, but he's you know, still old and grumpy. And, but he'll be dead in a couple of years, and that'll yeah. be fine. Where, where exactly they're going to go, given that they're at the wrong end of the Mediterranean? <laughs> Is a bit vague because Greece, <laughs> possibly. Oh, no, Greece. No, Greece is occupied by the Nazis. Yeah, Italy. Oh, that kind of pals with the Nazis. Mm. Spain is fascist. Yes, Portugal. Switzerland's very nice. Yeah, but they have to going to go through somewhere else. I'm sure that I'm sure heading off anywhere is better than staying put. Yeah, but um, at least they're together. <laughs> yes. Although I think they should have stuck to that part of the book and killed Kuza. Mm. So that he achieves his redemption yeah, and yeah. dies. Well, it depends on the film, doesn't it? Sometimes that sort of redemption through character death is in itself a bit of a cliche sometimes. But, uh, but the character doesn't have anything else to do. No. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. Because now he's, he's, a, he's an old man with a horrible... Hello. Hiya. <laughs> Final thing, perhaps, about the music. Mm. The musical theme used at the end of the movie. Did it sound familiar in any way at all? I've got to be honest, I didn't listen to it because at the end of the film I was pausing it to read the closing credits. So, I mean, the way it's cut, the music sort of fades out half through the end credits and you just have sounds of the wind. Okay. And I think it would have worked better if that had been all the way through the credits, that the, the music had come to a climax at the end of the movie, mm. da, 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 and then the closing credits just... Wind noise. Yes, yeah, so no, it didn't ring any bells. But but it's funny you should say that you're reading the credits because it was credited. It's a cover by Tangerine Dream of Walking in the Air, the theme from The Snowman. Seriously? Yes. Blimey. Okay, no, I didn't pick up on this um, at all. It's, it's a really... Uh, I mean, it's a weird choice, but only in retrospect, mm. because this movie came out less than a year after The Snowman premiered. Yeah. But... It, fit, it does fit with this sort of very kind of triumphal yeah. tone. But even so, I can't help thinking of the little boy 
waking up in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve and looking out of the window and seeing, standing in his garden, Molossar with light coming out of his mouth. What child wouldn't want to say that? Going, come here, boy. Fetch me the talisman. <laughs> Don't you want to meet Father Christmas? Mm. So uh, I was disappointed when that wasn't the plot of the snowman and the snow dog. Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe you can pitch a third film. Apparently Raymond Briggs is a real grumpy sod. <laughs> so he would, I'm sure, love the idea of a crossover. Speaking of crossovers, The Keep is actually the first of a series of six novels. <laughs> six? Yeah. Wow. Uh, about the battle through the ages right. between Glaken and Molossar. Okay. I mean, I have seen comments... Again, online about from fans of the book who seemed unhappy with the liberties that the film took with the book, and they did feel again that these kind of mythic elements had all been stripped away. So that makes sense. Mm. Six books would seem to be pushing it, but I haven't read them, so maybe they're quite good. Well, this is uh, it's it's called the Adversary Cycle, and it's part of a whole universe that um, Wilson created called the Secret History of the World, which overlaps with some of his other work including a series of books featuring a character called Repairman Jack, which appears to be a science fantasy supernatural twist on the equaliser. Right. Okay. And the two end up overlapping and coming to a conclusion with the sixth book in which the world ends. Difficult to carry on after that. But yeah. Well, yes, well, that's why it's the last book in the series. Merchandise, merchandising for the movie included a role-playing game. Okay, yeah, I can see that. And a board game, <laughs> in which one character gets to play Molossar. Does another character get to be a little Scotty dog or something? <laughs> no, you get to... I think someone gets to be Molossar, everyone else gets to be German soldiers. And um, It was that time when every, anything that looked like it was going to be remotely successful, it probably used repurposed colder sets or something. Um, it may well have. I, I used to have um, a Dad's Army board game. Well, that makes more sense, because Dad's Army is for a family audience, so families play board games. What else do they do? Well, they watch weird, gothic horror movies about Nazis and the Holocaust, Mm. and then they play a board game about that as well. Absolutely. Like the infamous uh, Alien toys that um, 20th Century Fox thought Alien was going to be the big new Star Wars. So they started manufacturing all sorts of merchandise for it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And then they saw the movie... And they realised that it wasn't going to take off with the kids. Oh my god, that's fantastic! There has been a um, work undertaken on a documentary about the making of the keep. Yes, I saw something about this. That they just uh, that they were looking for funding or something. Yes, they did an, uh, an Indiegogo mm. uh, funding round last year. Unfortunately, they only raised a quarter of the money they needed. Oh. So it does seem like a little bit of a lost cause. It's called a World War Two fairy tale, and it does sound promising. Apparently, they have the passive endorsement of both Paramount and Michael Mann okay. uh, in that they, no, they haven't received any letters from lawyers. No cease and, dismiss, cease and desist letters. Yeah. I can imagine that some of the people involved would be quite happy to mm. uh, join in. Yeah. Ian McKellen seems to be the type who would throw his hat into the ring for anything that's yes, yeah. worthwhile. So if that's sort of still running, listener, and um, you feel like contributing a couple of pennies, I'm sure they'd appreciate your assistance. And if, if for no other reason, it might help to actually get a decent copy of this film yes, released. Yeah. Because let's start the campaign here. Let's, hope that, let's, let's make this go viral. Yeah. Um, it's a film that deserves to be seen 
the way it was supposed to be seen. Obviously, that's not going to be completely possible because of Wally Viva's death, but the three-and-a-half-hour version is at the very least going to be closer to what Michael Mann actually wanted. The ending we have, the one which is, I think, the biggest compromise caused by the effects problems, there is a version of that that works hmm. narratively, even if it does look a bit weird and a bit cheesy. Maybe with the, with the more expanded cut, it actually does work more as a, a coherent sequence rather than a bunch of stuff happening hmm. on the screen. Yeah, I mean, it's it. You kind of wonder whether there's the potential for it to be the similar sort of situation that Blade Runner found itself in, where there was the original cut, and now there seem to have been several different uh, versions on top of that. But yeah, a, a nice Blu-ray box set that includes the the current version and the long edit, and maybe yeah, Michael Mann's preferred version. Yeah, it'd be terrific, wouldn't it? Yeah. So. Um... Next Christmas, why not build a snow mollusar, cover it in coal dust or something, put lipstick around his mouth, because that's where all the light is, and then send a photo of that to Michael Mann and to Paramount and demand the keep be released on Blu-ray or Molasar's going to come and get you and, and menace you. Hashtag Molasar lives. Yeah. Thanks to Chris Arm for making the time to be on this podcast. Cinema Lembo is now on iTunes, with more than a dozen episodes available. So please subscribe, download, and review, and do a pal favour. Cinema Lembo is also on Twitter. You can contact me with ideas for episodes or comments about previous ones, at cinema underscore Lembo, or any personal messages you might have, at j underscore j underscore Phillips, with two L's. However, until then, remember, I am. have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Martin Fenton, with music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcast Network. Come and visit us at www.podnose.com. <laughs> when last... <laughs> I'm going to have to cut this out because it sounds like I'm some kind of maniac. Oh.